Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. Today we are talking to our dear friends, Dr. Tanda and Dr. Katie. They are naturopathic doctors and we absolutely adore them. They have the best advice. So we went to them and said, can you do an episode about combating sugar cravings? Because so many people struggle with sugar addiction and sugar cravings. And after the holidays is the perfect time to overcome this issue. So we get into all of that on today's episode. We talk about the connection between the gut and sugar cravings, nutritional deficiencies and sugar cravings, and so much more. I love this episode so much, Kea. And what's so great about Dr. Tanda and Katie is that they keep things simple for us to understand. And going back to the basics, which I know we talk a lot about, like getting good sleep, staying hydrated, what to eat, all of those can make such an impact when it comes to sugar cravings. And I was learning personally just so much from this episode as well. A hundred percent. And I have dealt with sugar cravings really intensely when I was younger. And I pretty much used all of the tools that they discuss in today's episode to overcome my sugar cravings. So if I could do it, you could do it. Yes. (laughs) So today we have Dr. Tana and Dr. Katie on the episode. They are the Soapbox Docs. The Soapbox Docs is an exclusive online community membership dedicated to women who yearn for more and crave an in-depth understanding of naturopathic and functional medicine. They are just some of our favorite doctors and you are going to love this episode. So let's get into it. Well, Dr. Tanda and Dr. Katie, we're so excited to have you guys back here for a second time, and I'm excited. We're going to be talking all about sugar and sugar cravings with you today, and while I was prepping for this interview, I actually read an interesting stat where it said that in the 1800s, the average person consumed 22 grams of sugar each day, and now 50% of Americans consume 220 grams of sugar a day or more, which is just wild. But I'm so curious to get your thoughts on what do you think is driving this massive uptick in our sugar consumption? And what is it doing to our health? I just want to start out like, even defining like, what is hunger? What is a craving? And what is your appetite? So I love that. Hunger is actually driven by ghrelin, which is our hunger hormone. And it's like the the biological need for nutrients to live. That's hunger then appetite is like your interest or desire for food. And you notice like, let's just like, if your dog gets sick, what does it do? It, the, one of the first thing to go is, is is it's appetite. So that's usually a red flag for somebody who has a dog. It's like, they stop eating. They immediately call the vet. Like, where's the appetite gone? So appetite is this like interest or desire for food. And then cravings is driven primarily by dopamine. So you have these two different pathways, right? So you have the hunger pathway that is hormonally driven by ghrelin and leptin. Leptin, it's L-E-P-T-I-N. Leptin is a hormone, it's our fullness cue, and ghrelin is our hunger hormone. So hunger is driven by those two hormones. So ghrelin will make us feel hungry, leptin will make us feel full. And when those are in, uh, when they're in regulation and we're eating a whole foods diet so our body can read through fiber and minerals and nutrients and vitamins. And so when the body feels satiated, it stops us from eating. The thing with cravings is because it's driven by that dopamine pathway and the dopamine pathway is, I mean, if it's our instant gratification. It's addictions. It's, it is the thing that will get you the frick off your couch to go do whatever it is that dopamine is telling you to do. It could be gambling. It could be porn. It could be food. It could be alcohol. It could be uh, Netflix. I mean, and all of those companies <laughs> that drive those industries understand the dopamine pathway. And so <laughs> sugar drives that instant gratification, like u- ultra processed foods drives that dopamine pathway because they're void of nutrients and they light up. So if you Google image brain scan, sugar craving and cocaine, sugar and cocaine light up the same part of the brain. 
So when people say they're addicted to sugar, Katie and I are like, yeah, no shit. We know <laughs> it's like, it's a real thing. And what then people sadly sort of collapse on themselves is like, then they think they don't have enough willpower. They think they're a bad person. They think of, and it's really not, it becomes this whole hormonally driven dysregulation of desiring for that dopamine. Cause once you get that dopamine hit, you want to go back over and over and over and over again. Anyway, just to start like, so hunger is like a biological need for nutrients. Appetite is the desire for food and cravings is its own little entity that, uh, yeah, as what you just said in the beginning is like, we have, you know, however many centuries ago there was, we were eating so much less sugar and now 60% of adults are, are relying on most of their caloric intake coming from ultra processed food, which are devoid of nutrients and devoid of fiber and devoid of minerals and vitamins and, and healthy fats and things that will help shut that, that will turn up leptin and help shut that down. And then 70% of our children are eat, are relying on processed foods, which again is driving that dopamine pathway. And so what do you want to do? You just want to go get that hit over and over and over again, because those French fries taste really good because they drive that pathway. Katie, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's also too, like we saw an uptick in sugar consumption too, like in the nineties with the low fat, no fat craze is that, you know, fat kind of got a bad rap saying that, you know, that's the driver of disease. And the sugar industry really sneakily kind of pushed that narrative and then was like, well, if we remove fat from the from food, it doesn't taste very good. So how do we actually sell this product without fat? We have to add sugar because sugar is, you know, like Tanda said, it's like, it, it's not going to necessarily hit that satiety button that fat would. It's going to drive that that dopamine, which is like our pleasure hormone, you know? And, and then on top of it, we're already biologically hardwired to really enjoy food. That's how we, you know, in a hunter-gatherer community, that's what would be pushing you to actually go find food when you're hungry and you're cold and you're miserable and you don't actually want to go find food. It's because it's so rewarding to us. We actually have to get a biological reward. So that reward pathway is already biologically ingrained in us. And then these companies knew that. They relied on our biology to sell their product. And so, you know, fat got a bad rap. We removed that and then we replaced it with a lot of sugar. So I think we also saw a huge uptick in consumption, sugar consumption with that too. And now, you know, I think we're, we're slowly seeing the pendulum shift that people are starting to not be so fat phobic. Um, but still it's like once we've opened that, that can of addiction really to sugar, it's hard to close the door on it and, and to turn, turn that ship around. Yeah. And I even see it, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the fat piece. I even see it with the calorie obsession, right? People are like, how many calories does this food have? And they're like, oh, it's really like, it's very low in calorie. It's totally fine. And I'm like, let me take a look. And then you look at the ingredients and you're like, what is this? I can't even pronounce half the stuff in here. And so I almost feel like that obsession with calories and fat, just as you mentioned, Katie, is what's driving people to just focus on those specific numbers and not care about like what's actually in their food, which is sometimes all these hidden forms of sugar. Sugar has like what, 75 or something different names. Um, and they all just mean sugar. So when you guys are working with people and they kind of come in and they say, I, I just have a sweet tooth. I, that's me. I have a sweet tooth you know, it is what it is. What do you guys say to that person? Well, they may really like sugar, but there's a couple of things at play there. You know, it's like, A, what's our relationship to sugar? That can drive that. I mean, just like anything that's like, if we're soothing with sugar, that can drive that, that uh, sugar craving too is like, you know, you have a hard day at work. It's like, do you pour yourself a glass of wine or do you reach for a bag of Oreos or, you know, do you sit and binge, uh, binge watch Netflix? It's like we use these different things, that dopamine pathway to soothe ourselves. So, you know, what's our relationship to food and, and are we emotionally regulating with it? That's kind of one question that comes up, particularly with women. But then on top of it, it's that it's blood sugar, right? It's like if you're riding a blood sugar roller coaster because you're, you know, starting your day with a bowl of cereal and there's no protein or fat in that, you spike your blood sugar and then you'll crash pretty quickly. And then again, you'll have to like reach for more food, particularly in the form of sugar or carbohydrates, because our brain runs on glucose. Glucose, it's not a bad thing because every cell in our body uses glucose for fuel and our brain primarily uses um, glucose for fuel. So our brain wants that. It wants that, that like kind of quick uh, burst of energy. What I often use with my patients is like the analogy of building a fire. Okay. So if you're going to build a fire and you're going to throw a piece of paper on that fire, 
that's going to be like your, your carbohydrates. It's going to burn really fast. It's going to burn really hot. And then it's going to extinguish. You're going to get quick, intense energy out of that. Then protein and fat is more like throwing a log on the fire. You're going to have more sustained energy throughout the day. But if you're riding that blood sugar roller coaster, you want that quick burst of energy because you're, you're just like feeling sluggish. Then you get the energy and then it burns off and then you get energy and then it burns off. And then you're just, you're just kind of on that path that won't set you up to win. So that's where, you know, another thing that comes in is just looking at blood sugar regulation. But then on top of that, you know, yet another kind of uh, layer of this is then what's happening to your microbiome, right? Because when our microbiome shifts in favor of, you know, bacteria that isn't necessarily setting us up to win, those guys really love sugar. You know, the good guys really love fiber. They like the things that you're going to find in vegetables, but the, you know, kind of quote unquote bad guys, they love sugar. And so they could be driving that, that craving too, is that like, they're like yelling at you being like, feed me, feed me, keep me alive, keep me alive. So what I say, you know, kind of initially with people is like intuitive eating is a really great tool. I think, you know, as we kind of, um, put ourselves back in the driver's seat of what we're craving, what we want to eat, how we want to nourish our body, but to go from, you know, kind of eating a standard American diet to having, um, you know, kind of an intuitive relationship with food. It's not necessarily intuitive if you're addicted to sugar, if your blood sugar is rolling all over the place and your, your microbiome is, is off and you're getting these signals that aren't necessarily you. It's like, how do you get in tune with yourself? Like, if you get in tune with yourself, you might be like, I really need sugar. <laughs> like I'm a dick. I love it. I want it. I want that. I want that hit. So what I like to do is like take our patients through the process of actually being back in the driver's seat, which means that you have stable blood sugar, which means that we're addressing your microbiome, which means that we're addressing your relationship to food, which means we're addressing your mental health and how you're emotionally regulating and whether you're choosing food or you know other vices to do that. So it's a pretty complex kind of multifaceted approach, but I think there's just, there's a lot of layers to look at when it comes to someone that just says that they have a sweet tooth, but most often it's not just because they like sweets. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening. And now let's get back to today's episode. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, even as someone who knows all this stuff, there'll be days where I'm not sleeping well. And I'll look at my husband. I'm like, I just want chips. I want a cookie right now. And I'm like, I got, and it's so interesting because you just have this desire. That's like, I want it right now. And I don't like sweets. Like that is not typically me. And my husband's like, I don't think you slept well. And I was like, oh shit, you're right. So like being mindful of how certain, you know, even lifestyle things can impact your blood sugar or your craving. So I'm curious, you know, I know I mentioned at least for me sleep, but do you see any other lifestyle things that can kind of impact someone's wanting for sugar cravings or need to kind of shift away from like more healthier blood sugar, you know, quote unquote, balancing meals? One bad night's sleep. And I'm going to define bad as uh, less than seven hours. Uh, there's been light stimulation before bed. Uh, there's maybe a nightlight on in your room. You know, it's like 78 degrees in your room. It's like everything's not set up for ideal sleep. And Katie and I will go over what an ideal sleep, like sleep hygiene looks like. One bad night's sleep, you will wake up the next morning with 33% less leptin. And if you remember, leptin is the thing that makes us feel full. So not only is your, it also throws off insulin, it throws off your glucose, it also decreases leptin. So you're just eating, you're reaching one for carbohydrates, and you can just keep on eating. So that is just one night. So sleep hygiene is 
I mean, I say I call sleep the master dial of health. I think it's just such a beautiful way to help people heal because it's free. And so when we do it and we really honor our sleep-wake cycle um, and do all the things to set our sleep up well, then you will set up your blood sugar to win for sure. The other thing that plays a huge role in hunger, blood sugar, and fullness cues is hydration because a lot of people are dehydrated and they're also drinking just water. And so what? how clean is our water? It's not. So not only is our water, you know, if you're drinking city water, Katie and I are pretty adamant about getting water filters into our patients' hands to really clean up the quality of water that's going into our body, but then also making sure that we're adding electrolytes because magnesium, potassium, and sodium, water follows salt in the body. So we have to have sodium to actually absorb water. And 100% of us are uh, ins- have is- insufficient amounts of potassium. And so that's oftentimes when sodium gets a bad rap, which it has, it's not necessarily sodium's fault. One is the quality of sodium, like what kind of salt are you eating? You know, Katie and I are huge proponents of like good like Himalayan sea salt, um, where you're getting that quality salt. But when we have that imbalance of ratio between sodium and potassium, that's when people will start retaining water right? So that's where sodium gets the bad rap. But when people are doing electrolyte drinks, like we love Element, LMNT, and then liquid IV is another one. Uh, So making sure that people are staying hydrated. So when people say I'm craving sugar, I'm hungry. Are you really or are you dehydrated? So that's another kind of what Katie was saying, just being a little bit more intuitive about eating and, and your cravings is when you get that like, itch that hunger feeling like one if you're hungry if this is actual hunger or would you go eat a bowl of vegetables and if they are like oh yeah that sounds good then you're probably hungry but if you're like oh no i really just want a cookie like you're not hungry that's a craving so it's just these ways you can kind of check yourself but making sure our patients are staying hydrated is key and and not just water like we are really huge proponents i don't care if you're working out every day you still need electrolytes like katie i mean i do probably one to two not probably i do one to two of those elements a day and you know katie and i are we're sweating we're going to the gym we're doing saunas or whatever it is um so our bodies are definitely needing it but you know people say like oh i don't work out or i'm not sweating i don't care. We need sodium, potassium, and magnesium um, to help with that, all of those with the cravings too. Magnesium, we are, I think, uh, oh gosh, when I was listening to Hyman the other day, it was like 25% of us or something are actually deficient in magnesium, but then something like 83% of us are insufficient with magnesium levels, all of which will have a huge role in how one, you're feeling uh, but to your sugar cravings. And the sad part is the ultra processed foods actually deplete magnesium from our body. So we think we're eating and we're getting nutrients. You're actually draining. And again, ultra processed foods are, <laughs> K.O., what you were saying in the beginning is like, you can't pronounce the ingredients. That's an ultra processed food. If you can't make it in your kitchen, it's ultra processed. Yes, McDonald's French fries taste really good, but they're also doused in a lot of those nasty seed oils. There's lots of um, lots of oxidative stress happening there. And then they're put into a container that is covered in PFAS. PFAS is a huge problem for I mean, environmental toxicity, we're going down all sorts of roads, but you, you huge fan of French fries, if you can make them in your own kitchen, you know what I mean? So yeah, I would say hydration and sleep are two big ones. Katie, would you say anything? Yeah. Also stress, you know, that's kind of the big one. That's been super fun. Like we've been doing a lot of continuous glucose monitors with our patients and the stress piece of it honestly has been surprising like how blood sugar is impacted by stress. I mean, physiologically, it makes sense, right? If you're standing in front of a tiger and you need to have a lot of, you know, available energy to be able to fuel your muscles to either fight or run away, then how does the body do that, right? Even in the absence of food, if you're fasted and you come up against that tiger, you're still going to need glucose to be able to feed your muscle cells so that you can sustainably survive, So the way that we do that, because glucose is so important in our body, again, it's not like we're not hating on glucose. It's just how well are we regulating and how well are we metabolizing that when we're stressed out because our body is so dependent on glucose, we have a backup. Our liver can actually take stored glycogen and through a process called gluconeogenesis, so gluco meaning glucose, neo meaning new, genesis meaning to create, we can actually create glucose in the absence of food. 
So when you're fasted and your liver, you're like, you're sorry, your stress response kind of turns on, you shift into that sympathetic nervous system. Your body says, I've got this, you know, it's like, even though we're hungry and we're fasted, I can still create glucose so that our muscle cells will be able to, to fight this tiger to run away. So that's all well and good when you actually want to fight and run, but what's happening when you're sitting at your desk, right? And your blood sugar just starts to raise, but there's no, you're not actually using any, you're not using your muscles the way that you would historically. So what, um, and I don't know, Tanda, if you want to care if I share this story, but so we had done glucose monitors on ourselves and, um, you know, food looked really good. Like there wasn't a lot, it was, you know, pretty steady Eddie and Tanda was, uh, you know, with her dogs and looks out the window and they had gotten out of the fence. So dogs are missing. They run away and she scans her arm in the process of, you know, like looking for the dogs, you know, being super scared. What's going to happen? Are they going to get hit by a car? Do they run away? Are they going to get shot? Like, you know, all the catastrophizing that's going on in her brain and her blood sugar after not eating, she was fasted, was like in the 200s. So that's the impact of stress on our, on our blood sugar. So even if you're eating like a perfectly clean diet and you're hydrated and you've slept well managing your stress. And then what, what I have found really cool is like, it's a, it's a neat way to, to define stress because all of us are, you know, we're moving through our day, but we wouldn't necessarily, unless you're like kind of dealing with a catastrophe or, you know, kind of like those big life events, a lot of us don't necessarily think we're all that stressed out, you know, or we're managing it. Okay. But when you put the glucose monitor on, you you know, your biology isn't lying. So <laughs> that has been kind of the funnest part about the, the glucose monitoring for, you know, our patient's sake. Because like, yes, I want to see what's happening with food. Yes, I want to see what's happening with sleep. But stress, man, that's a big one that a lot of us aren't talking about. And that's been that's been kind of neat to see. I'm just looking back on the past two years since I had my my first child. And I'm thinking about those three things. I was definitely dehydrated when I was breastfeeding. I was definitely not sleeping well. And, you know, it's a big life change. So there's stress and my sugar cravings. I, I, I got rid of my sugar cravings, actually. Like I was really good and I had a sweet tooth growing up. In the past two years, they've just come back. Like, you know, I really have to work and I have my tools of like how to overcome all of that. But, you know, they've really come back full force. And I feel like as a new mom, I give myself grace. This is just like a specific period in my life where this is happening. But I can't help but think of all the, the the new moms who are probably out there feeling the same thing. Like I'm going, how do I prevent all of this? And I like just want to eat sugar to survive. And, you know, what do I do? Well, the cool thing about, you know, some of the studies are actually showing that uh, some of the detrimental effects of lack of sleep in new parents, uh, particularly moms, that you're like biologically protected from that. So it's not this necessarily the same of just like, you know, having an all-nighter or, you know, just not prior prioritizing your sleep because there's a, a whole new like hormonal shift when you're caring for a newborn and like all that oxytocin and the connection and like the way that I interpret it is like you're protected by love, you know, it's like in that process. And, and sometimes it is that, okay. It's like, yes, you're underslept, you know, yes, you're, you know, probably a stressed out mom. Yes. You're dehydrated from, from breastfeeding, but your body actually might just be craving more carbohydrates because you're trying to sustain another life. And because you're trying to heal from, you know, what your body went through that massive transition in, in pregnancy and then giving birth and then in postpartum. So there can be that too, is just like giving yourself grace is like, maybe it doesn't necessarily look like, you know, in the form of a cookie. I, I hope occasionally it does because I don't want to <laughs> live in a world where I can't have cookies, but maybe it's just actually like your carbohydrate need has increased so that your body can heal. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And just honoring those different stages of our lives. I want to take a step back and talk about why overconsumption of sugar is a problem. You know, we got into the blood sugar piece, we got into the glucose piece, but what do we see with long-term overconsumption of sugar um, in terms of health outcomes? Uh, there was a cardiologist, and I can't remember his name, and he described eating sugar. And when we say eating sugar, I'm referring to cakes, cookies, crackers, pastas, processed food, you know, candies, that table sugar. And he described it as like sandpaper to the inside of the body. And I was like... <laughs> ouch <laughs> i get that like what it does is just that it creates chronic inflammation and i don't care which way you shake it chronic inflammation and by creating chronic inflammation it is spiking glucose it is spiking insulin it is creating uh, oxidative stress it 
uh, it's like sandpaper to the inside of our body. It's chronic injury. And which then leads to the immune system having to then report to that chronic injury. That is called the inflammatory response. So then the immune system's constantly reporting to that, in, that inflammation, that injury. And then you then after years and years and years, you have chronic inflammation and, and chronic inflammation, I don't care which way you shake it, will end up with a diagnosis. And it could be cancer, it could be diabetes, it could be heart disease, it could be Alzheimer's, it could be, I mean, you name it. The other thing is, I think the study was done with two Petri dishes, and there were normal cells in one and cancer cells in the other. And they, the, the theys of the science world squirted glucose into both Petri dishes. The cancer cells ate it four times faster than the other cells. It's a problem. It's a huge problem. And because it's not just the sugar alone, it's the cascading events that, that, that it, how it wreaks havoc on the body in all of those ways that I just said. The other thing is glucose is like, it's a sticky molecule. It, it, and so this is where you get trouble with type two diabetics, losing limbs and going blind and having chronic kidney issues. Because when you get all the way down to the toes and the fingers, the capillaries are teeny, teeny, tiny. And glucose, when it's dysregulated, so if you have really high levels of, of sugar in the blood, think about it as sugar in the blood. And then when it gets down to these teeny, tiny little areas in the kidneys and teeny, tiny areas in the eyes and teeny, tiny areas in the feet and the hands, it's clogs it. So then you don't get circulation there. So then the circulation gets cut off and then you get gangrenous and you get kidney failure and you go blind. So it is, there's really, I wish there was something nice to say about sugar other than the fact that it does taste good. And like Katie, I do want a life that I can eat cookies, but like it doesn't do a whole lot of good for the body. The other thing is just with chronic sugar consumption is insulin resistance. So what happens is, you know, you eat a cookie and your body then breaks that down into glucose, right? We take, you know, kind of table sugar, we break it down into glucose, which is a molecule that our body can understand. Now, if you're eating a cookie occasionally, you know, if you're eating carbohydrates in the form of like you know, sweet potatoes and beets and winter squashes and things like that. That's not a problem. That's fuel for your, for your cell. So when we think about, you know, kind of healthy glucose metabolism, we're thinking the name of the game is how quickly can we get glucose out of the blood and into the cell? How can we quickly use it for fuel? And the way that we do that is we break down, you know, that, that cookie or that sweet potato or that, you know, French fry, whatever it may be into glucose. And then it goes into the bloodstream that signals our pancreas to release insulin. And insulin is, a, is a, an anabolic, so it's like a building hormone. And then insulin and glucose are like BFFs. Insulin then enters into the bloodstream and it is the one that knocks on the door of the cell and says, hey cell, I have glucose, would you like any? Now a healthy cell opens up that door to the knock that, it, that insulin had. So glucose can't go up and knock on the door of the cell. The cell won't open the door. We need insulin to be able to shuttle glucose into the cell. So a healthy cell that is sensitive to that knock on the door from insulin will open the door and say, yeah, of course, I'd love some glucose, send it on in. What happens over time when we're eating a diet that's very high in glucose or we're, you know, kind of, again, like riding that, that blood sugar roller coaster is that you know, by the fourth or fifth time that insulin's knocking on the door for the day, the cell's like, no, I'm good, actually. Like, I don't really need any. And so over time, our cells become what's called insulin resistant. It's not going to open the door to the knock of the, that insulin is knocking on the door. So then what happens is like this kind of double-edged sword is not, now we've got glucose hanging out in the blood for longer periods of time because it's not able to shuttle into the cell. And that's where it causes damage. That's where it acts like sandpaper on the vessel. In the cell, it doesn't act like that, but in the blood, you know, in the, in the, in the vasculature, it does. So then on top of it is we have chronically high levels of blood glucose. So our pancreas is chronically getting the signal that we've got a lot of glucose to, to deal with. So the pancreas is shuttling out more and more insulin. So in the beginning stages of insulin resistance, you'll actually find a lot of insulin in the blood. And that's where people can really get into trouble because you're eating the glucose, it goes really high, but then you'll crash really fast because our body is compensating for the fact that the cell isn't as sensitive to the knock on the door. So maybe one, it, maybe it won't open its door to one insulin molecule, but maybe it will if there's 10 knocking on the door. So our body actually like gets smart and is like, I know what to do. But then we have the issue of not only is there blood is there glucose hanging out in the blood for longer periods of time, but now we've got insulin hanging out in the blood for longer periods of time, and that has a whole cascade of events of, 
you know, fat storage, because then what do we do with this glucose? And, and then on top of it, now we have cells that aren't really readily opening or re- readily opening their door to glucose. So that can show up as like, you know, what they're calling now um, dementia and Alzheimer's as type three diabetes of the brain is because it's insulin resistance of the brain. And again, the brain is the number one consumer of glucose in the body. So if your brain is hungry, then it's going to, it's going to signal, like it, it's going to also, um, signal you to want more sugar in your diet because the brain is perceiving itself as starving. Even though there's plenty of glucose in the blood, it just can't access it. And so then we have like, you know, all of the issues of just what happens to a starving brain and then what happens to cells that can no longer get, get glucose. And then over time that can look like, you know, type two diabetes where, you know, we've heard of, you know, people who are insulin dependent, meaning that they have to take a shot of insulin because basically what's happened is that their pancreas is like puttered out. It's like, I have been pumping out insulin for so many decades. I just can't keep up with the demand anymore. So what's the point? And so then we actually have to become dependent on insulin from an outside source. So that's, I mean, long-term effects of, of dysregulated blood sugar is it, every cell in the body is impacted. Every organ system is impacted. It's, it's just not a, it's not a good path. I really appreciated your description, Katie. I was like going with you. I love the knock on the door. I was like, oh my God, I understand now. Like I know Kay knows it all, but I'm still learning all everything myself here. So that was amazing. And I'm so curious because one thing I noticed, you know, depending on where I am in my cycle, because I did wear a glucose monitor back in the day, I noticed that I would be more or less insulin resistant at different parts of my cycle. So is that accurate? And if so, like what's going on with our hormones if we're still in our reproductive years? Because I'm curious, like if I'm going to eat that cookie, should I wait till after my period or is it worse before? So I'm just curious how that all shows up. No, it's a good question. And it it is a natural thing. Our bodies fluctuate into, um, over the course of our, so if you're, if you're having kind of a normal 28-ish day cycle, um, it depends on kind of who's running the show, like the first part of your cycle. So if we count day one is the first day of bleeding to ovulation. So like around, roughly around day 14, estrogen is really running that show. And then in the latter half of your cycle, progesterone is running that show. You know, the first half of our cycle, our metabolism slows down. So we have a slower metabolism, but we're more insulin sensitive. So in estrogen is a more like insulin sensitive hormone. So you're, you're better able and more resilient to, to um, metabolize that glucose efficiently. Progesterone metabolism speeds up. So you're actually hungrier, but you're more insulin resistant. So in those kinds of, in that time of, uh, that time frame of your, of your cycle, increasing protein, increasing fat, increasing calories by a little bit is going to be necessary. But the reason that we feel like kind of hungry and we're craving those carbohydrates is mainly because we're probably undernourished with protein. So increasing protein, because you do, you're going to have a higher caloric demand, but your cells will naturally be in more insulin resistant during that period. So you're not going to be able to respond to that cookie or that, you know, that piece of pie or whatever it may be as well in that second half of your cycle as you would in the first half of your cycle. But you might struggle with cravings a little bit more because you're actually, your metabolism has sped up. So you're hungry. So that's when it's just really important to get those extra calories through, you know, like throwing the log on the fire versus the paper. I want to get into practical tips for people who are listening at home and they're like, I, it's just uncontrollable. I have a sugar addiction. I've identified that. What are some steps that they can start to take today to overcome that if they have, you know, that motivation to want to? One of the first things, um, I mean, what Katie said too, is like really diving into their actual relationship with food, right? And and being more mindful, like when that sugar craving does come in, what time is it coming in? It's usually midday or after dinners or after meals. Um, what kind of nutrients were they getting in that meal, right? Is their body still thinking that it's hungry because they were eating you know, a chicken breast and steamed broccoli, which is the worst meal in the whole wide world. I don't know why people think that's healthy. <laughs> it's like, sounds so terrible. It's like, who wants to eat a hockey puck with some bland broccoli? So like making sure that their, their meals are like fun, fun, like full of really healthy fats and good protein and flavors and spices and herbs. I feel like it's more important for women than men. Men can eat the hockey puck and the whatever. And they're like, I'm good. But women, we need like the fun. <laughs> yes. I, you know, and, and you know, food is such a way to experience pleasure and how we deny ourselves with 
pleasure and especially with being female. And so that's where it's when somebody says, you know, oh, I'm craving sugar after a meal. And we're like, well, what'd you eat for dinner? Well, it was the steamed broccoli and the Pocky Puck. And we're like, okay, <laughs> let's start with actually having fun with food. Like that's, that just jazzes me up so much. I just think food is such a beautiful way to communicate and share and celebrate love and life and flavor and experience and pleasure. And so that's one is just kind of starting where, where people are at with, with their relationship with food. Do they like eating? Do they not like eating? Do they like cooking? Do they not like cooking? Um, so some education and handholding around that. Then what Katie spoke into is protein, protein. I can't tell you the number of patients that we have have helped increase their protein and their cravings go away. And it's the reason is because their blood sugar actually gets stable. And so their brain is like, oh, I have fuel all day long, Susie Q, because you're actually eating protein because it's like a throwing a log on a fire. So the brain isn't like, no, Susie Q, we need more carbs, more carbs, more carbs, more carbs, more carbs, more carbs. I'm starving because, you know, she ate, you know, oatmeal for breakfast and then no, no, <laughs> drank coffee first, then ate oatmeal, then ate, you know, ramen noodles for lunch, then had a diet Coke, then had pizza for dinner. And the, the brain is just like, I, that's all I know to, to crave, to tell you to do. Plus she's eating, you know, very dopamine addictive foods. And so making sure that we're coaching people around the allotted amount of protein and the rule of thumb around protein is 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. That's on the kind of the lower end. And so in, in real words, that is a 130 pound human should eat about a hundred grams of protein a day, just under. And so if you can average as a woman around between, you know, around 30 grams of protein and that it's actually pretty challenging for people. Um, and Katie's really taken this on, uh, actually like tracking it and she's crushing it, but it's like, it's taken effort, right. For her to like really put into like mixing protein powder in with, yogurt and making sure that how many eggs she's eating. And, um, it takes a lot, but, but when people's blood sugar gets regulated, most of the cravings actually disappear because the brain is fed properly. Um, the other thing to look at is nutrient deficiency, specifically magnesium. So making sure that people are getting minerals, uh, is huge. All of our patients are on some sort of mineral supplement at some point in treatment. Magnesium and omega-3, I think, are the two of the biggest ones. Plus, because fat is another thing that tells the brain that it's full. It will trigger that leptin to say, stop eating. That's why when we went through the fat-free craze and we pulled all the fat out of things, we just kept eating. And we all got, I don't like using this word, but we all got heavier because it was all sugar. And because our brains was like, I'm still starving because there's no fat. So making sure that the fat and protein balance is, is there. And then, you know, and helping people with, so tyrosine, which is found in food, is the pre-precursor to dopamine. So how can we set people's diet up so that they're eating these tyrosine high, high, foods high in tyrosine that will help with that dopamine pathway in a healthier regulated way, not coming from that like need and craving. Um, so dairy, like high protein foods, I know this is going to come as a shock. Like we are so pro protein. Um, so dairy, you know, soy, which fermented soy, I'm a fan of, um, nuts, cherries, those are all high tyrosine foods. So like starting your day with, you know, cottage cheese and some cherries and some nuts, is like that will set up your one, your blood sugar up to win and two, feed that dopamine pathway in a more healthily regulated way. I love that. And I definitely have seen the impacts of that in my own life. And I never was eating frequent meals or eating the right breakfast. And my brain just completely turns on and I'm way more functioning of a human being. So I love sharing info like this and protein and fat. And I still think some people are scared when you say fats, like you need more fats in your diet. So I actually am thinking about how do I get more healthy fat? So can you guys give me some examples of what that might look like for you? So not all fat is created equal, but healthy fats, I would consider like organic and kind of caveat here, fat is, I think, an important place to kind of, you know, spend money, invest in quality fats, you know, particularly animal fats, just because of the way that the animal is treated and what's actually stored in that fat molecule versus a healthy, healthy, healthy animal will then kind of dictate how that fat is, is um, 
impacting your body. So that's just kind of like a side note. It's just like, I do think like fat and, you know, animal protein is uh, a place to kind of put a little bit more of invest in that a little bit more. Um, but healthy fats, I would say like organic grass fed butter or, and or ghee, um, uh, extra virgin olive oil, avocado oil, avocados, nuts and seeds, um, you know, dairy products, particularly raw dairy, if you can tolerate it. Um, what else am I missing? Tallow, like tallow duck fat, uh, lard, if it's from like pasture raised pigs, um, the, all of those are going to give your body really healthy fats and saturated fat, you know, again, has kind of gotten a bad rap. And yet, you know, that is what makes us feel, uh, satiated. And there it's not, not again, like not all fat is created equal. And what's the health of the animal that you're eating that fat from? Um, but I just use it liberally. You know, it's like when I cook or if I make vegetables, I'm adding, you know, a decent chunk of butter to it. I'm adding tallow to it. I'm adding, you know, and I'm getting variety in that. I'm, I'm coating things in olive oil. I'm eating, you know, predominantly a whole foods diet. You know, you're making a, an olive oil based dressing. That's one form of fat. You're eating animal protein that has fat in it. Maybe you're topping, you know, your vegetables with a, a good chunk of butter, you know, really kind of any, any meal that I'm eating, I'm getting more, um, more fat. And Tanda, do you have recommendations for that? I think that's one of the things that surprises most people when they do cook and eat with Katie and I is the amount of fat that we add. You know, it's like, we are very liberal with it. Um, and you know, the, the amount of, butter that I consume, I think would put most people off, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's one, I, it, I think it's a superfood. I mean, it, it's full of, it, again, coming from healthy animals, you know, cows are actually outside eating grass that were then milked and making butter. Butter's ingredients should be cream or cream and salt. That's it. And in that butter is butyric acid, which is an anti-inflammatory compound. It's the, all the fat soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K are all contained in there. And it's like, it is a superfood. So um, I think also just helping people debunk and the uh, the myth or that we have had for so many years around fat. And it's like a swear word. I mean, it, you watch women, especially when you use the word fat, they cringe. And uh, it is, it's, it's taken a lot for uh, Katie and I to really coach and teach our patients that it's okay. It's actually neat. You need it badly. There's a really good cookbook if you want to kind of do a deeper dive into um, just like the biochemistry of fat and why we got so skewed from that. It's called Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon. And the beginning of it is just like, it's, it's kind of like a textbook. She goes into all of the, the macro and micronutrients, but she gives the whole kind of history of that fat phobia, how that started, and then actually like how fat is used in the body such that fat isn't the problem. Really the sugar and dysregulated blood sugar is going to be causing you know you to store more fat. It's going to be harder on your vessels. It's going to create more inflammation. You're going to create more cholesterol in response to that. The fat itself is not the thing actually doing that. If you have regulated blood sugar and you're eating you know a diet that is you know, has ample amounts of healthy fats in it. I mean, your every cell membrane in your body is made up of fat. Your brain is mostly fat. Your hormones are made from fat. Like fat is a massively important uh, molecule in our body. Like we, we have this backup system that if we don't have glucose, we can use fat to, to feed our, our brain because fat's actually probably more important than carbohydrates are. So I think we got really off track in the, you know, kind of mid eighties, nineties, and we're slowly trying to course correct, but, um, that's a good resource for people if they're looking to just learn a little bit more about it in a, in a digestible way. I love that book. And I also love what you mentioned too, because if anybody's listening and they're still eating a ton of processed carbohydrates, please don't just add butter to your diet and think everything no. is going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably going to make things a little, um, freaky. You might see some scary numbers that you might not like. Um, yeah. So I want to talk about so much of what we've discussing is metabolic health. So if anybody's listening to this and they're like, okay, I suspect metabolic dysregulation is driving my sugar cravings. I want to work with my doctor. I want to figure out what's going on. What are some recommendations that you have for them? What labs should they be looking into? Yeah. You know, and, and just to throw some stats out there, they're pretty staggering. 93.2% of us are metabolically unwell. And what that means is a kind of a combination of a lot of things. One is what Katie was saying earlier was that like all those like spikes and dips in your blood sugar, your blood sugar should look like 
if you're doing like a continuous glucose monitor, it should look like rolling hills, not peaks and valleys. That is very stressful for the body. And, and then we, uh, many of us are like, oh, I want a fast metabolism. No, you want a flexible metabolism. And that's what Katie was just saying is you want to be able to use glucose as fuel because we're eating. But if we are in a fasted state to be able to switch into ketosis, you know, lots of people have heard of the, the keto diet. Um, but that's a flexible metabolism that you can go into a fasted state and still have energy. Your body is actually still high functioning because you are in ketosis and your body can switch back and forth. I imagine that like two different pantries in your kitchen, like one is the glucose pantry and one's the, the fat pantry and the body can just switch back and forth depending on where you're at. And many of us are stuck in the glucose pantry and the body's the, has a lock on the fat pantry. And that's where people don't have a flexible metabolism. They have to eat every two hours. They get hangry. They have sugar cravings. They um, they have a quote unquote sweet tooth. They wake up in the middle of the night with heart palpitations and they're not in menopause, right? That is the body going through major blood sugar dysregulation, mostly based on stress and diet. Um, but in terms of labs, this is... This is, I think, where Western medicine and just sort of more of this, this conventional approach to blood sugar uh, uh, monitoring fails miserably because we are looking to what you typically get on, uh, you know, your regular labs is you get a, you, you get glucose. Sometimes it's fasting. Like it, they make it, they say like do fasting. Sometimes they don't. So it's not, it's not even really that clear for people. And, and many times I'll say, I'll ask my patient, well, were you, were you fasting? They're like, I don't remember. I'm like, oh man. So it's, you'll get glucose of some sort. Then you'll get your cholesterol, which is again, pretty generic. It's like LDL, HDL and triglycerides, which really doesn't tell us a whole lot. Um, and then maybe they'll do hemoglobin A1C, but that's it. That's what that's, that's the monitoring of blood sugar. And then they say, oh, well, if you're over a hundred, you know, if your glucose is over a hundred fasting glucose is over a hundred, you've got a problem. Well, I'm going to tell you if your fasting glucose is over a hundred, you've had a problem for about a decade. That is like, that is your horse is so far out of the dang barn that it's there. The, there is a problem. So that's, I think we're doing people a huge disservice and sort of that, that sort of regular, I'm not knocking conventional medicine. It's just sad because we have uh, these other markers that I'll go through that can really help people identify way sooner that they have a, a metabolic issue and blood sugar dysregulation issue. One of them is get your fasting insulin tested. It is a cheap test. The, the range, <laughs> I was laughing at this. Okay, you'll probably laugh at this too. The range for insulin, fasting insulin is five to 15, which is insanity. Nobody seen, should be. I've seen it as high as 24 on certain labs, depending on. Like, <laughs> wow. You want your fasting insulin to be under five, under five. And yet, yet they have the range at five to 24. Like, I think something over, like if you're over 10, you're pre-diabetic. We're looking at like pre-pre-diabetic. You want your fasting insulin under five. It's a cheap test. It will tell you a ton about where you're at. Your fasting blood sugar, maybe, I mean, for so for some people, it, it should be in the 70s. And I almost never see that on a lab. I don't think I've ever seen it that low. And, but yet that might be, that might be what we actually need to be normal. It's like maybe 75 to 95. So looking at your fasting blood sugar, then looking at your hemoglobin A1C and hemoglobin A1C is like a, sort of simply said, it's the average of what your blood sugar has been doing for the past three months. Now, this can be also misleading because I'm going to take you all the way back to like stats or whatever class we all took, we hated. But when you have a high and a low and a high and a low and a high and a low, and then you take the average, what does it look like? It looks normal. So hemoglobin A1C can actually throw it off. So, but if your hemoglobin A1C is high, which anything over 5.5, is high. I like to see, Katie and I like to see ours, our patients between 4.8 and 5.4. So anything over 5.5, you've got a problem. Um, so that means that your average blood sugar is sitting up, you know, in the hundreds on a daily basis. That's a problem for all the reasons that we just listed. The other thing is to look at leptin. Leptin is that, that, that fullness 
cue. Because when we have, um, when we're under a lot of chronic inflammation, the brain isn't responding properly to those hunger fullness cues because of what Katie was saying about it being starving, but there being glucose in the blood. So it gets very, it, and it's chronic inflammation and all of this stuff is happening. Um, so testing your leptin, testing uh, the ApoB and C-reactive protein are two other tests. Both of them just sort of generically are measures of chronic inflammation. And both of them are steered more towards cardiovascular health. Um, but if both of those are elevated, you've got a problem. Um, the other thing to look at is uric acid. So most people associate uric acid with like gout and kidney stones. But it's a compound produced by the body in the course of metabolism of fructose. So fructose, when you're eating fruit, is totally fine. And the reason is because God made sugar and then because it tastes good or the universe or whatever, but then put it in a form of fruit paired with fiber and minerals and nutrients. So all of that, it's like fiber is the antidote to sugar. So it's like when we eat an apple, it's very different than eating ultra processed food with high fructose corn syrup. And that's the, the issue with, with uric acid. So fructose is fine in, in fruit because it's paired with that fiber, but it's not when it comes in the form of high fructose for, corn syrup because it's free. So it's just pure fructose. And then it puts a huge stress on the liver. And it also doesn't raise blood sugar. So it can tr start triggering what we call non-alcoholic fatty liver disease uh, and high uric acid. So again, if uric acid is elevated, then you've probably got a blood sugar issue. And like I said, ApoB and CR CRP. The other thing to look at is triglycerides. Um, Katie and I like to see them under, I like to see them under 75. Um, and then, you know, looking sort of deeper into cholesterol and how, uh, you know, are they big fluffy cholesterol molecules or are they the small uh, dense ones? And so getting more detailed into your cholesterol levels. So again, just to summarize, it's your fasting insulin, fasting blood sugar, leptin, L-E-P as in Paul, T-I-N, ApoB, CRP, which is C-reactive protein and uric acid. And if you look at those and your cholesterol levels and triglycerides, you'll get a real, real clear picture about where you're at. The only thing that I would add to that list are liver enzymes. So ALT, and I would look at that too, just to see again, for that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is most likely because of a, um, a blood sugar imbalance. So just look at how your, your liver enzymes are functioning too, but everything, I would just add that to that list. Yeah. And I, I think the nice thing about all of this, even if you get back your numbers, you're freaked out. The nice thing about our metabolic health is that it's almost never too late to do something about it. I would probably hope to say like 99% of the time something can be done just by taking all the interventions and things that you guys talk about. So even if it feels overwhelming, if it feels scary, like small things can happen today that can move the needle in the right direction. And I'm sure that you guys see that in your practice all the time. That's the cool part about blood sugar regulation. And what we always coach our, our patients around is like, we can turn this around pretty quickly. There's a lot in the body that might take way longer, but insulin and blood sugar dysregulation, you can chase it. You know, you can change how your blood sugar is responding by what you eat, which means that you've got three minimum three opportunities a day to change that, you know? And then if you're moving your body and how you're sleeping, like Tanda mentioned earlier, it's like, if we can change our insulin resistance by, you know, by just getting one poor night's sleep, you better believe we could change it in the, in, for the better by one night's sleep too. So it's like everything that you can do to move your health in, in the right direction is going to influence your, your blood sugar. So it's not too late for anybody. You know, honestly, if you do come back and you're like, oh my gosh, I really do have blood sugar dysregulation. There are way worse diagnoses out there. You know, that's not a, not a bad one. You can do a lot. There's a lot that we can do in the course of a day that, you know, are free and lifestyle hacks and you don't have to spend a ton of money at it. So that's not a, not a bad one to get. Katie, do you just want to fire back and forth? Like, favorite packs and see how many we can get. Sure. Okay, go. You go. Okay. Apple cider vinegar before meals. Yes. Uh, move your muscles after meals, like 10 minutes of movement because you're going to be using your muscles and your muscles are huge consumers of glucose. So going for a 10 minute walk or cleaning the house or doing planks on your kitchen floor or 
use your muscles after you eat. Build more muscle. So strength training, just putting more muscle on. Muscle is, um, A, we can bypass that. Like the reason that moving, uh, moving your muscles after a meal is that we can bypass that. Remember if insulin knocks on the door and it doesn't open, there's only one condition in the body that does not need insulin to move glucose into the cell. And that's under like when you're using your muscles. So if you're exercising. So also just building muscle means that your body is more metabolically active. There's almost like, oh, I forget who it was, but I was listening to a podcast and he was using the analogy of a parking garage. So imagine like muscle cells are parking garages for glucose molecules. So the bigger the muscle, the more parking garages for glucose, so the more that we can shuttle that into. So strength training and putting on more muscle mass, is it's like the best hack at balancing blood sugar without actually having to do anything else. So now I wonder if that also applies to to stress, like when the dogs ran away, Tanda, had you been like, okay, the dogs are good, I'm going to go work out, would that have like, helped in that situation, right? Mm -hmm. Totally, yes. Um, another one is prioritizing protein. I, we, I cannot say that enough. Like the, the witness one personally, uh, how it helped me with my sugar cravings because I was a very, very bad vegetarian for a lot of years and I craved sugar so badly. Um, and then as soon as I started eating animals again and animal protein, my sugar cravings uh, disappeared. Um, so prioritizing protein is another one. The order in which you eat your food. So eating fiber first. So if you have a plate and you've got, you know, some broccoli, you've got a piece of steak and you've got some potatoes, start with the broccoli, then eat the steak, then finish with the potatoes. There's going to, you're going to be competing for absorption. So if you were to eat the potatoes first, that's going to quickly turn into glucose, going to go right into your bloodstream. If you eat the fiber first and then the protein, that's going to slow everything down. So you're not going to see that big spike. So you can still eat the foods that you like just with some simple hacks. You can start to like really manage your blood sugar without having to change your diet completely or not eat the foods that you, you know, that you enjoy, like potatoes and French fries and pasta. You can still have those things. Just be a little bit more mindful about the order in which you're eating them. That's going to make a big difference. Prioritizing sleep too, because sleep is the master dial. It is my favorite biohack. Just do it. It's free. Sleep in the dark. Uh, you know, the more hours before midnight, the better staying on a sleep schedule. So going to sleep at the same time, waking up at the same time, using things like lavender and Epsom salts at night, because that lavender will help lower cortisol and the magnesium will help you sleep. Um, sleep is another big one to, that's a, yeah. Yeah. I mean, NK, you were right. Like moving your body after, like if you are in a stressful situation or you just had to have a really stressful conversation or you're, I don't know, doing your taxes and you're freaking out about it, like go for a walk, try to mo mobilize that glucose into your muscle cells just so that it's not hanging out. Like, like I said, it's like, it's a, it's an ancient response when we would actually have to use our muscles to survive. We don't necessarily have to use our muscles to survive taxes or like tax season, but if just by going for a walk or, you know, stand up, do some jumping jacks, whatever it takes, but you will actually mobilize that glucose into the cell um, rather than it just hanging out in the blood. Yeah. And I'm just going to say magnesium because magnesium is my favorite thing in the whole wide world. And you guys have a great one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks for the shout out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also along the lines of, um, the the order in which we eat our food what about the quantity in which it is so for example typically when i look at somebody's plate it's like 75 percent of the starch and then like maybe a little bit of some broccoli and maybe like a little bit of protein but that's probably not the right way to go about it if we're trying to balance our blood sugar yeah so i like to tell people half your plate should be plants you know, half your plate should be your, your kind of like veggie starter should be half of your plate. And then probably, you know, a quarter of it could be your protein. And then, you know, a quarter of it can be um, your carbohydrate. And then sticking to carbohydrates that are going to break down more slowly in the body. So we have complex carbohydrates. So things that are coming from from the earth, you know, it's like in its unadulterated form. If you've got sweet potatoes, if you have potatoes, if you have, you know, root vegetables, beets, um, winter squashes, anything like that, the, the closer that it is to its, its whole food form, just like Tanda said with the fruit, that's going to be packaged with more fiber. It's going to slow down um, that starch being turned into, into glucose. 
Um, so focusing on that, prioritizing that as your carbohydrate source. But if you are, you know, out to a nice Italian restaurant, just making sure that you're having like a, have a salad to start and then, you know, make sure that you're getting enough protein that you're having, you know, some, I don't know, chicken or animal protein, whatever it may be. If you're having something, say it's like a soup or it's a pasta dish and everything's kind of mixed in together, I just like to recommend people start with a veggie starter. So if there's a, a veggie option on the menu or if you're cooking at home, have a salad to start, have a side of broccoli to start, have some roasted Brussels sprouts to start, have just, you know, kind of a veggie starter before you dive into that, you know, what, whether it's a casserole or a soup or a pasta dish where it's like hard to differentiate the, the carb from the protein. Um, that's just a hack there too. Yeah. And then if we're looking at supplements outside of magnesium, doing things like berberine, inositol, chromium, gymnema, there's some really great, again, like if somebody, you know, is, is hearing this and they're like, yeah, I, do, I think I do have blood sugar dysregulation. They do go get their labs and they're like, oh my gosh, I do, you know, it's on paper. Uh, there are, like Katie said, there's so many ways to turn it around and you can do it so fast. And there are a lot of supplements out there that are, do really, really well with um, helping people with blood sugar dysregulation. And I would just say to, you know, if you can get your hands on a continuous glucose monitor with the caveat, if you do not have a history of an eating disorder or disordered eating, that can kind of make you, it can be a little bit crazy making between the ears. Um, but if you feel like it would just be kind of raw data and a, a helpful guide in choosing different foods or how to, how and when to move your body, I do recommend a continuous glucose monitor just to help you see, like lift up the hood, look at your body in real time. Don't wait for those, you know, that, that next level of, or that next round of labs, you can actually see what's happening in real time when you eat specific foods. And I may metabolize certain things different than Tanda or different than Yaz. Like our bodies are individual and so I may be able to, you know, handle a little bit more fruit in my, in my diet, whereas somebody else may not. So I think it just helps us kind of put the pieces of together or the pieces of the puzzle together for you specifically and just see what's happening in your body in real time. But again, like use it for a tool. Don't become obsessive about it. It can be, a, it can make you a little bit weird. So totally. No, I know. I mean, even doing it for a month was good enough for me just to kind of understand trends and whatnot, but I love it. No, but Katie and Tanda, we love having you here. You're always just such a wealth of knowledge with like tactical tips for people to take away. And it's always so, so fun. So thank you so much for being with us. We'll share all your information in the show notes of where people can find you. You have incredible groups and all the content that you guys do. So we'll include that, but thank you for being with us today. Thank you. We love you so much. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire. <laughs>